0: Welcome to another episode of Relentlessly Resilient, where real people share real life experiences and the tools they've developed to move forward and live their best life. I'm Michelle Scharf.
1: And I'm Jenny Taylor. And today we have a dear friend of mine, Patty Elliott, joining us. How are you, Patty?
2: Good morning. I'm doing well. I hope y'all are.
1: Oh, we are. We just love having you, and as we sit here in the middle of Utah, we just love your beautiful North Carolina accent. I could listen to you talk all day, so uh, <laughs> so grateful that you would join us from clear across the country. Uh, just a quick little background, Michelle. So, you know, Patty and I met through that Army organization that we've referenced a few times. Uh, she lost her son in Army service. I lost my husband in Army service, and we now both work As advisors to the chief of staff of the Army on trying to help improve the casualty process, the paperwork side, the benefit side, kind of that behind-the-scenes side, the Army's got a great investment in trying to help take care of Gold Star families like ours. I think there's genuine concern, and it has been wonderful to work with Patty because, Patty, you are just a force of nature. I know you're heavily involved with the Gold Star Mothers of America. You are an advocate for the families of the fallen and those who serve. And you just have a beautiful, positive outlook on life. So I am so grateful that you would join us today.
2: Thank you. I appreciate you having me.
1: Well, first of all, we just want to know, who are you? Tell us about you. Tell us about your family. Tell us about your son. Let's get to know you a little bit.
2: Oh, thank you. So I am from North Carolina, born and raised, lived here all my life, don't want to live anywhere else. (laughs) I had two sons, my oldest son, Brad. And then my youngest son, Lucas, his name was Daniel Lucas Elliott. He went by Lucas, and he was three years younger than my older son. Again, they both grew up in North Carolina and um, all their life. And from an early age, Lucas was never one of those team sports kind of folks. He didn't play baseball or football. Uh, He played it a couple of years, but it wasn't his thing. But when he was 12 years old, he was invited to join a high powered rifle team that shot at a local. At 12. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So he was shooting an AR 15 at age 12. Wow. Yep. So the rifle team was mentored by the Marine Corps rifle team out of Quantico. Oh, awesome. He was in awe of those Marines. And so that, combined with what happened on 9-11, ignited a passion in him that he wanted to serve in the military. Well, you know, when a kid's 11 or 12 years old and they say something like that, you as a parent kind of go, sure, you know, I'm sure you're going to do that.
1: (laughs) Go to the moon, whatever you want to do. That sounds great.
2: Exactly. But then in 2006, when he turned 17, he came to his father and I and said, look, remember, I want to join, I'm going to join, but I've decided I'm going to do the Army, but I'm only 17, so I need y'all to sign for me to go in, and oh, by the way, there's a recruiter coming to the house Wednesday afternoon. (laughs) Get your pen ready, Mom. Exactly. So the recruiter came, and we talked, and I listened to their spiel and all that, and what ended up, we compromised and agreed was that he joined the Army Reserve, rather than the active component because I wanted him to go to college. You know, I listened to the stories and I felt like it would be a better track for him if he would get his degree, his education, and then, you know, go into an officer position rather than just enlisted. So um, I should have left him alone and let him go active duty from the beginning because the first opportunity he got to volunteer for a deployment he did (laughs) so in 2007 he uh, left and went to basic training and did his basic and AIT at Fort Leonard Wood he was a military policeman okay and when he came back he was assigned to the 805th military police company here in Cary North Carolina and so he started college in the fall But he really was adamant that, hey, I've gone and I've gotten this training. And, you know, he had battle assembly every month. And he wanted to put those skills to use. So he got an opportunity in the spring, actually the fall of 2008, he put his name on a list to volunteer to deploy with a unit out of Tampa, Florida. He left in March of 2009 and they went to Basra, Iraq, and they were there for a year. He came back in April of 2010. He got back just in time to be in his brother's wedding, which oh, was wonderful. Great. <laughs> yes. But, you know, as we hear so many times with so many of our service members, once he had been over there, he was itching to go back again. And so his home unit had been put on alert at the time that he came back in 2010. And at the time his unit was on alert, they were scheduled to go to Afghanistan. So that was perfect for his little adrenaline junkie self (laughs) that I've been to Iraq. I want to go to Afghanistan and I want to go with the people that I've been training with for two years. And so this is great. So he jumped through all the hoops that he needed to do to get the medical clearance to go back again so quickly. But as people who have had military experience know, the only thing that's constant in the military is it's change. <laughs> and so um, the what they were supposed to deploy to Afghanistan in the fall of 2010, it turned into they didn't leave until May of 2011. And, oh, by the way, we're going back to Iraq.
1: Mm. So
2: he ended up right back in Basra, Iraq. Are you kidding me? He was not a happy camper. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, he it was um, not a good place to be. And although it had been a decent deployment his first time, you know, everybody came back alive albeit with their invisible wounds, but, you know, everybody came back safely. And so for me as a family member, I was okay with that. I thought, oh, great, you know, he was there a year and he came home safe and everything's going to be great this time Yep, Yep, yep. But he was about 45 days after hitting boots on ground. Because he had been there before, he knew the route. He knew the roads. He knew what were the, quote, safe places to go and the streets and those kinds of things. So he tended to be in the lead vehicle when they would go out on mission. He was in the lead vehicle on the morning of July the 15th, and their vehicle was hit with one of the roadside cell phone detonated projectile devices. Mm. And it's the story we've heard time and time again that it hit the truck at just the right spot where there was just the right weakness in the armor for it to penetrate. And it struck him in the back of the head. He died instantly from my understanding, which is, you know, the good thing he did not suffer. Absolutely. But there were five young men in the vehicle that day, and Lucas is the only one that lost his life, and to me, that's a blessing.
1: Patty, I'm just, I, to hear you tell this story, first of all, I'm smiling because so much of what you described is like so many soldiers I know, including my own husband, where you call it that itching to get back. The volunteering to serve. Your son didn't just wait around until they said he had to, but he was eager to serve. He jumped through all the hoops to get back as quickly as he could. That desire to serve in both those different countries, and yet the willingness to go back to Iraq again. And how tragic to have it end the way it did, especially so shortly into that second deployment. You said 45 days. Yeah. He
2: just they, got there. Yeah. They left the country. At the middle to end of May, I think it was around the 22nd maybe of May, and he was killed on July the 15th.
1: Okay. So that would have been, what year are we talking? Is this 2011? Uh,
2: yeah. Yes, 2011. Oh, man. It was uh, three days before his 22nd birthday.
1: Oh, Patty, it, he's so young. It's hard to imagine he did all of that by not quite 22. I mean, deployed and back and trained and back and starting college and, and doing all of these things. We're going to take a quick break and let everybody kind of catch their breath. When we come back, Patty, we want us to walk you through your side of the day he died, what that was like, and where in the world do you go from there? He's your baby's son, and he's truly just a baby at the time. 21, 22 years old is so young. We'll be right back. All right, Patty, so you've just told us about this uh, adrenaline-seeking, service-minded, very strong-willed son of yours that wanted to join the Army when he was young and, and did at 17. Went first through the Army Reserves and then plans to go through college and become an officer. But even before that, he's deployed, he's back, he's deployed again, 45 days into his second deployment in Iraq. Uh, They hit a a roadside bomb, cell phone detonated. It hits just right, hits him just right. He lost his life that day. Walk us through your experience that day and in the coming days.
2: So I've always been a volunteer. I feel very strongly about being involved in your community and making a difference in other people's lives. And so when he was assigned to his first unit, I quickly became involved with the family readiness group, and I was his family readiness group leader. Of course you were, Patty. For
1: those listening that don't have <laughs> that don't have a lot of military experience, a family readiness group would be maybe like a PTA at a school or a relief society, if anyone's familiar with LDS Church around here, or just kind of that family social group that keeps everyone back home connected and informed and involved while the unit is deployed. And Patty, I'm not at all surprised to know you were the family readiness group leader. You would have been phenomenal in that role.
2: Thank you. So the Army Reserve provided great training opportunities for their family readiness group leaders. And I actually was at a conference in Dallas, Texas. I arrived in Dallas on Friday the 15th. Now, you know, of course, with time changes and time zone differences and all of this stuff, When I landed in Dallas, Texas on that Friday, he had already been killed, but I did not know that yet.
1: And you were not home to get the knock on the door.
2: Exactly. Wow. Now, I was the conference that I was at. I was a teacher, I was a presenter at the conference on how to build a family readiness group. And there were command teams from all around the country, from the Army Reserve, there at this conference including the top leadership from his command out of Fort Meade, Maryland. Oh, my goodness. They all knew, but I did not. Oh, my goodness. And they so, can't
1: say anything. Army protocol is so specific, you have to be notified through all the protocol. So properness. Who,
0: who, it, ha, who is the one that exactly. has to tell you?
2: Well, that's a, a funny story, a, a funny ha-ha-ha. So we go throughout the day on Friday, and I kind of noticed that they were, like, people were being really nice to me. Not that they weren't nice anyway, but it was kind of like, you know, Patty, what would you like to do? Would you like to work registration, or would you like to go over here? And usually, you know, they just told you here, we need you here. But I didn't really think anything about it at the time. And so that Friday night, okay, so let me back up just a step. Lucas was married. And so his wife had to be notified first by Army protocol. She needed to be notified first. There was some difficulty in getting her notified because the Army Reserve had not updated his paperwork that he had filled out. They had not input it into the computer. So they were trying to notify her at her family's home in Ohio, but she was actually in North Carolina in summer school at college. Oh No. So they had not been able to notify her all day on Friday. Well, some, when an incident happens in country, they shut down the communications on the bases in country. But Lucas's unit had been split between two bases in Iraq, and they shut down the communications at the base he was at, but they didn't shut down the communications where the other half of the unit was at. Oh my and goodness! And so, so I some knew, all knew of those and some kids. didn't. Right? Well, no, everybody knew over there. But those kids at the other base, I was their FRG leader too, and I knew many of them personally. Some of them, you know, had spent the night at my house and all. Well, those you're the days. mom
1: to everybody, Patty. I can just tell you're that kind of person.
2: Right. So the people in Texas created a ruse and confiscated my cell phone which oh. I was not happy about at the time, but, but in they hindsight, had to. once sure. right, once I learned sure. the rest of the story and they actually intercepted calls from the people at the other base on Friday night, oh calling to check goodness. on me. So Friday goes on and you know, it happens, it ends and they still keep my cell phone. I don't have it. And I don't know Saturday how somebody
0: gets your cell phone. Cause I'd be like, no, no. Yeah. You can have my oh, for five oh, seconds.
2: Kicking, yeah. Oh, I was kicking and screaming and I was kind of ugly to the woman who took it. And I, you know, I've apologized to her since, but I was not happy. Yeah. But anyway, so Saturday morning, the lady who had my phone, you know, I said, I need my phone overnight because I use it as an alarm clock. Right. And she's it's like, my everything. I'll, yeah, I will come wake you up Saturday morning. What time do you want to get up? And so at 6 a.m. on Saturday morning, there's a knock on my hotel room door. And I was mad because I thought it was her, and I had told her not to wake me up till 6.30. So I thought it was her, so I walked to the door and just, like, throw the door open angry, thinking, I don't even think to look out the peephole, but I throw the door open to fuss at her for having my phone. And there are two men in uniform standing there.
1: Oh, my gosh. Six in the morning. I mean, they're not even giving you a chance to brush your teeth and get out of bed. Right. At, in a hotel. Oh, Patty.
2: So my name is Martha Patricia. And, of course, I go by Patty. But they said to me, are you Martha Elliot?" And that was my son right yeah, there. This is official. Yeah. You know, just seeing them standing there, because some of our soldiers were with us at this conference. Sure.
1: You're at an army Army conference. Sure.
2: Yeah. Six in the morning is a little odd. Yeah. I'm like, okay, what has somebody done and gotten in trouble? Mm -hmm. And they're coming to me as the FRG leader, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever. You're the
1: mama. You got to fix it.
2: Oh, yeah. And so I just, it was a blur, but you know, God had me at the exact right place at that moment because all of the leadership was there. They all had had this whole day to advance plan. So that knock on the door was at 6 a.m. By 930, I was on my way to the airport and had a flight back home to North Carolina. Wow. When I landed in North Carolina, so at the time, my older son, so I had the task of calling my older son and telling him, uh, you know, so they give me the basics and then they, of course, I'm still in my pajamas. Yeah, They give me my basics sitting there in the hotel room and they left somebody, another FRG volunteer that was from North Carolina came in and she took care of packing all my stuff while I, you know, they said, we're going to give you a few minutes to get dressed and collect yourself and meet us down in the conference room. And we've got some paperwork and all that stuff. So, you know, the first thing, of course, I do is call my older son. So he meets me at the airport when I land in North Carolina and I pull in my driveway here at my house and there's already news crews sitting in my driveway. So those first 48 hours I vaguely remember them but they're mainly a blur and oh by the way and here's one of the worst parts of that day so I get to my connecting flight in Chicago and it's about 10:30ish or so and I think okay I had been so focused on getting packed up and out of the hotel and to the airport and everything like that. And it's like 10 and they've already, you know, it's 1030 in the morning. And I think, okay, it's safe for me to call my daughter-in-law now. And I call her and she answers the phone and I'm like, Hey. And she's like, Hey, how are you? And what? I said, honey, have you not, talk to anybody. I didn't know they had not notified her. How in the world had they not notified her? Because they went to her parents' house in Ohio and her parents um, there was a language barrier and her parents they just told the army officers appearing at their door, she's not here. Go away.
1: Oh, so if they couldn't find her, you're now secondary next to kin. They have no choice but right. to go to you.
2: Well, actually, the folks in Texas told them, we don't care what y'all do as far as notifying the wife. The mother will be told Saturday morning. Yeah,
1: you can only wait so long with all of them yeah. knowing, knowing that you exactly. don't yet know.
2: So, so you I were the one that she...
1: told your daughter-in-law?
2: Yes. Oh, Patty. Up on the phone in the airport. It was awful. And so I'm like oh, my God, honey, have you not talked to anybody? And she's like, no, what's going on? So it was just looking back on it, you know, the paperwork sessus. And, Jenny, you can understand. That's why I'm such an advocate for the survivors' issues now. Yeah, I don't want anybody to ever have to go through something like that again.
1: Yeah, it should never happen that way.
2: No, it shouldn't.
1: Keep going. So you fly home, Your your layover, you're talking with your daughter-in-law, you land, the news is hanging out in your front yard, your son is there. What? Walk us through what's next that day, the next few days, the burial, Dover, all of that. Can you just, can you kind of summarize your journey through that and, and maybe what you were feeling and what that experience was like?
2: It was surreal. You know, as I looked back on it a few weeks or months down the road after it happened, I didn't drive for the first month. Somebody was always around me, taking me everywhere. And it was not that I didn't feel like I could drive. I just, I totally, I'm a huge control freak, and I will freely admit that. But I gave up control. It kind of knocked me down to size that I realized It was God's way of showing me, you are not in control. Mm -hmm. And so I just kind of acquiesced to being chauffeured around everywhere. And, you know, the whole casualty officer process, I had a good casualty officer. I've heard some other stories of military families. And, you know, I, I have no complaints about my casualty officer at all. He did the best job he could with the tools that he had, but there's sometimes a disconnect between information. One example of that is we went to the funeral home to make the arrangements on that Tuesday, on the 19th of July. And as we're sitting there, at that point, we didn't know when he was going to come into Dover, didn't know any of the details of that. The casualty officer had not been updated on that. And so I'm sitting there trying to make funeral arrangements. And the casualty officer tells me, because the funeral director is a a family friend. And so I had said to him, I do not want an open casket, but when he gets here, I will see my son. And the casualty officer told me that, I would not be able to do that because his body had been burned beyond recognition.
0: Oh my goodness.
2: So I had to I had to have a moment. Yeah. Sitting there in the funeral home. And I rethought the entire everything that we had planned up to that point. I had to rethink it. Yeah. And so at that point I made the decision to have him cremated. Hmm. I later learned from his commander. So one of his team leaders came home in November of that year on an R&R trip. Actually, his wife had a baby, and he was sent home to be with his wife. And I found out that what the casualty officer had told me was incorrect, that although the device had hit lucas in the back of the head that from the front you couldn't have told there was nothing he he had he had some burns on his body right but so the the uniform you were given completely
1: wrong information
2: i was his body was just fine i I mean i would have been able his staff sergeant told me you could have had an open casket and nobody would have ever known wow so just little missteps and miscommunications and stuff like that and you know on that Tuesday they told us hey we don't know when he's going to come into Dover you know we have no idea and then on Wednesday morning at 7 o'clock they call us and say hey he's coming into Dover this afternoon can you be on a plane in an hour oh my goodness no no I can't I live an hour from the airport no I can't yeah I won't make the (laughs) flight right So we did not get to go to Dover. And you did not go to Dover? No. Patty? Did not. No. Oh my gosh. So you know, there are little things that I, I hear. I see the dignified transfers. I see other families who've got to do that Wow, and you know in the big old picture of things it doesn't it doesn't bring him back sure it doesn't give me it would not have given me any comfort to see that casket pulled off the plane. you know, nothing like that, but just some of those things that people assume. Are the same for every family right. or not?
1: Well, and even to hear you talk about how difficult it is to not know when, when your loved one's deceased body is in the custody of the Army, in this case, you can't set the funeral date because you don't have the, the authority. You don't, you don't know when and where and what. There's so many things that when you look back, it kind of sounds like maybe an inconvenience. In the moment, it's horrendous. It's horrendous and agonizing to not know when will I get him back? When will he be home? How can I possibly make
0: these plans? Well, and I can't imagine, for me as a civilian, I didn't have those issues, right? But I had so many people and family members that wanted to know when that funeral was going to be. Everyone's pushing for the calendar. everybody's pushing for a calendar, (laughs) and then people are giving you their calendar. Yeah. I'm on vacation. I'm not going to be able to make it here. I'm traveling this way and it's like I can't take care of 200 people's schedules yeah. and my husband's service. Like it's going to be whenever I can have it at the location I can have it at. But then you compound it with this kind of stuff right. like it, that has to add a layer of stress and just it, agony it, and just agony. Yeah, just yeah, just not being able to figure out how this is all going to fall in
2: place. Right. And that was kind of what I was faced with. So we had decided on that Tuesday sitting there, we had decided that we were going to do his memorial service on the 22nd, on that Saturday. And I was okay with, because once I made the decision to cremate him, we just did a memorial service. His body was not going to be there. His ashes were not going to be okay. there. It and was you proceeded just going anyway. to be a memorial. Okay. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And that was what I needed to do because of the same thing. You know, it's funny that you say that, Michelle, because, yeah, everybody was pushing for a date. And, you know, you need to do it on a weekend so that people who are traveling – I, and I, it ended up happening that way. But I'm like, really? I'm supposed to accommodate all these people? <laughs> <Yeah. I'm good. laughs> Sorry, people. I didn't schedule this. Yeah.
0: yeah oh, Patty. I, I, that was uh, the most baffling thing to me. It sounds like maybe a small thing when we're talking about it. Yeah, like, looking it, like, back, it doesn't seem like a big deal. Right, But, but when you're but in, in, in the, the middle of it, it, oh, yeah. it, it, of it and you're getting those phone calls, that pressure, it, it's well, like I'm think... in the middle of my grief and loss. And I just need to figure out how to get this done. That's hard enough. Yeah. So and those calls unknown. coming in is it just puts it over a top that is like really uncomfortable.
1: Okay, Patty, we're gonna yeah. take one more break for a minute. When we come back, walk us through it's now been a decade plus. Walk us through the immediate aftermath, your your journey, your growth, your service you continue to provide. You have not just pulled away from the army and said, That's it, I'm done. In fact you've given more and more. When we come back, we'd love to hear more of that journey of your own relentless resilience. We'll be right back. All right, Patty, I have met you. I've known you. I've worked on this working group through the Army with you for months now, and yet I knew hardly any of these details and it's interesting what you said so many times when we've been through our own loss and we know someone who's maybe been through a similar situation we just assume it would have been just like mine or the same path or the same experiences when in reality they're all so different so unique can you tell us and and i wish we had hours and hours but we don't can you kind of walk us through the 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 main points of your journey from that burial the memorial service of your son, even without his body and ashes, but that memorial, the immediate aftermath, and then into the months, and as the years go by, what have you learned? How have you grown? What good, what bad, what highs, what lows? Can you walk us through your journey there?
2: Sure. So, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I would love to just be a professional volunteer. Unfortunately, I have to work for a living, (laughs) but um, I've always been very involved in my community. Well, While Lucas was alive, I belonged to Blue Star Mothers of America, and one of the main programs that Blue Star Mothers do is we honor Gold Star Mothers, and so I knew about the American Gold Star Mothers organization and didn't ever want to be one of them, but I knew about them hey
1: patty so, i'm gonna pause I'm going pause for a quick second and just um identify for those who might not know the difference between blue and gold. so if you think back, everyone probably in the movies or somewhere in your life, we've all seen those flags of a star that hangs in the window World War one World war two uh, they would hang a blue star in the window if you had a service member deployed, and then if that service member were killed, they would cover up the blue star with a gold star so that the neighbors in the community would know. So Blue Star Mothers would be mothers of anyone serving, deployed, and I love that those of the the living service members are so kind and wonderful to the families of the fallen. So Gold Star would mean you've lost someone in the service. Blue Star would mean you have someone in the service. So how touching that you've been involved in both of those organizations, and I can see where you would say, as a Blue Star Mother, you, you never want to be the Gold Star Mother. Sorry, I just wanted to kind of identify for the civilians who might not understand some of the the terms.
2: That's perfect. Thank you. You know, sometimes when you're so intimately familiar with something, (laughs) you forget that they're – yeah. But so it was a natural extension for me to become involved with American Gold Star Mothers. I also – and this is kind of a personal note – that I could see that my being involved with the blue star mothers my chapter it made them uncomfortable because i was who they didn't want to be Mm.
1: and so they
2: felt like they had to maybe tiptoe around and you know they would complain because they hadn't received a phone call from their soldier and then you could see them go "Oh, oh no yeah you know I'm complaining because I haven't received a phone call. And, you know, You're know you the ultimate
1: reminder. You're the ultimate yeah. reminder of the risk.
2: Yeah. So I kind of transitioned because that was it was the right thing to do. So, you know, our mission in American Gold Star Mothers is to honor our children's service by continuing that mission and taking care of their brothers and sisters in arms, And so we do a lot of things for our veterans, the families of the fallen, and those service members who are continuing to serve. You know, we volunteer at the VA hospitals, we do clothing drives, school supply drives for military children, um, you know, all of those different things, anything that we can do to help that population. I've also stayed involved with my son's unit. I continue to be uh, one of the family readiness group leaders. And with the Army Reserve, actually, it's all the branches of the military, you know, kind of go through this. As people cycle through the different units, there are very few of the soldiers still in the unit who were there when Lucas was there 11 years ago. But they all know who I am. The building, the Reserve Center, was renamed for Lucas in honor of Lucas in 2013. And so even those people who didn't know Lucas, when they see my last name, they're like, oh, I know who you are. So I've stayed involved with the family readiness group. You know, I think one of the biggest things that this entire journey has taught me, admittedly, I'm still a control freak, that I'm not in control, and that every single day is precious. And that you have to live every day to the fullest. And I still get frustrated. And, of course, I moan and complain about things like we all do. But I try to live with a grateful heart because even after losing Lucas, God has blessed me in so many ways to allow me to find ways to continue to serve and continue to keep his memory alive.
0: That's really beautiful. That's really beautiful. And it's an unfortunate story, but I found myself crying and tearing up. It's hard to imagine 21
2: years old. He was so young. He would have been 33 this year. And, uh, you know, it just, but for, you know, he'll forever be 21. But that's the face. You know, I don't know if he would have gray hair now or, you know, (laughs) those are the things you wonder.
1: How do you honor him now? I mean, I know you do all of the service and that's kind of honoring him and the local level or the reserve level or the national level or American Gold Star Mothers. Maybe as a family, are there certain things you do on his birthday or the anniversary of his death? Is there anything that you do that, that maybe brings you comfort or helps you on the more personal side as you remember him on some of those days? I'm just curious how you handle
2: that. So my older son now has three, my three grandchildren, who are ages 6, 7, and 10. So none of them ever met their Uncle Lucas. But with the anniversary, his angel anniversary, and his birthday being only three days apart, we as a family from that July 15th to July 18th time period, those are sacred days for us. The girls, my granddaughters, bake him a cake or bake cupcakes, and we have a birthday party for him on the 18th of each July. On the 15th, it's more, uh, you know, it's a solemn day, and we don't talk about this is the day Uncle Lucas died, but we make sure we're together and we draw close to each other. It's left over from the July 4th holiday that year. My older son, his wife, and I were at the beach And we talked to Lucas that weekend, and he said, go down to the water, go down to the edge of the water, put me on speakerphone, and hold up the phone so that I can hear the ocean. Mm. So every year, the 4th of July week, as a family, we go to the beach. And we've done that every year since he died. That is beautiful.
1: I know. We're both just fighting back emotion and tears here. I love that you said we keep him alive. We, I try to live with a grateful heart. We draw close to each other and we make sure we're together on those difficult days. It's not necessarily a day to sit around and rehash the awfulness of what happened, but we're together those days. We're remembering, we're loving, we're honoring him. Patty, you are an honor to your son, the way you are living your life and helping so many other people lifting. I can't believe you're still involved with family readiness groups. That is inspiring more than anything else I can think of. Can you tell us, we always ask our guests, how would you define resilience? What does resilience mean or look like to you? I mean, I think you are the persona of resilience, this gratefulness, this service, this positive attitude, this love and family connection. I think we could write books from what you've taught us. Could you define or describe resilience in your life?
2: So, you know, of course, the technical definition is you bounce but don't break. But for me, it's that you accept that bad things are going to happen, but you don't let those bad things define the rest of your life. You take the time that you need to wallow in that bad thing or you know, stew on it or ponder it or do whatever you need to do. But then you, I hate to put it this way, but you pull up your big girl panties <laughs> and you move on. <laughs> you know, oh, you you know just, you, <laughs> I think that, that
0: a lot of times when we hear people say that we focus on that last part, like, you know, cowboy up or, yeah. pull, or pull yourself together, your britches up or yeah. you know, what, however you want to say it. And people don't honor the space and time of the sentence before, which is take the time to feel. Even if it means wallow for a time. Yeah. Let Mm -hmm. yourself really feel that. Allow yourself to feel it and to really feel it. Where is it happening in my body? How is, what does this feeling feel like? Am I, is it the loss? Is it the grief? Is it the missed dreams? Is it the hopes? Is it, You know, and there's so much with a 21 year old young son. I have a 21 year old son and you know, you instead of like in a marriage where you have hope and dreams of 30 years that you're planning together, you have the wonderment of what they're going to do with their lives, right? Who are Mm -hmm. they going to marry? How many children are they going to have? What will they be like? We have all of those dreams for our children. And you see him living his best life, his passions. He was married, clearly. And I'm sure you were looking forward to the day when you would have his grandchildren. So there's a lot to process in that as a mother, the, the loss of the hopes and dreams of what life would have been to see him grow and to see his mm-hmm. life take shape and lift off. And taking the time to feel the loss of not only him not being present, But of those dreams and hopes, I think that it's really important. And I think that that's part of the piece that when people rush it, when people feel like I've, I've, okay, I've been sad, or I cried, or whatever, or don't, or don't feel it, then it's hard to get to the next page of really pulling it together and moving forward. I really appreciate you telling, saying that about taking the time to feel those are powerful words.
2: Yeah, And it doesn't all happen in a linear process. It's not like it happens, it's over, you never go back there again. No. I mean, you still, you have days, even 11 years later, I have those days and those moments, and I allow myself to do it. Patty, I love you. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Thank you. (laughs) I'm still thinking on what you said just seconds or moments ago about resilience being that you just expect that bad things are going to happen and you're not Mm -hmm. mad about it and you're not super shocked. I don't know why we're so shocked when bad things happen because bad things happen. And so maybe part of the resilience you have that makes it so just strong and able to carry you is the prepared mindset that I'm not invincible life is not going to be perfect and that's not that's not like a depressive way to view things it's not like you're being pessimistic i think it's a realistic outlook Mm -hmm. something's going to go wrong and i'm going to bounce but not break and it's not the idealistic view that nothing will ever happen and i'll be fine and then you're shocked when something doesn't go as planned but you know you know what something's not going to work out and then it's going to work out somehow it might not work out the way originally planned and i love how much you touched on um your own personal faith that it was you know god's hand or god's guiding you to to need to accept help from people even if it's chauffeuring you around and how difficult that is i'm a control freak like you and i'll tell you the word i use for the initial aftermath of my husband's death is just surrender there's no other word mm-hmm. surrender mm-hmm. physically surrender emotionally surrender everything you've got and with that surrender it sounds like you have also found as i have beautiful growth and peace and blessings and and the beautiful pieces of life that come in the midst of this heartache and pain. Patty, have you written a book? Because if you haven't, I would love for you to. I would love for you. I would love for you too. And I'd love for you to back up. Um, I love that you're everybody's mama because I can see how you would just draw people to you. You've got such a loving personality.
0: I'm just curious, you. I, you mentioned that you work out with CASA, right? It's the CASA. No, this is a SOG. It's called oh, Sog um, Sur- Survivor Advisory Working Group. Okay. Correct. So yeah. you you guys are on SOG. So have they changed some processes for the situation with your, your daughter-in-law? Like, are they like before a guy gets deployed, all that paperwork is inputted? Like- on paper, yes. Now, does it always yeah, happen yeah. that
1: way? That, that's where there's, it, it was oh. probably always on paper when... At that time,
0: too. I mean, in this day and age, yep. you you would think that there would be like, no we're, excuses. we're not, yeah, no excuses. Yeah. All, all of the paperwork has to be in and file, and all of our checkbox has to go before these troops move on mm-hmm. and are yeah. deployed. Because that seems like a really critical a piece.
2: Yeah. yeah. And I, unfortunately, I know of some other cases that the exact same thing happened. He had completed the paperwork. It just had not, I mean, they'd only data been gone entry. 45 days. Yeah. It was data entry.
1: Yeah, it was a to-do on a box somewhere. Yeah. I will say in the Army's credit, Patty, I know that between the time of your son's death and my husband's death, many wonderful positive changes have been made. And that's one of the most humbling things for me as I sit on the SOG. I got on the SOG right away after Brent died and I was brand new. And I realized even though there's still things you want to improve and, and there's definite room for improvement, I realized how wonderfully better my experience, my benefits, my process had been because of the mistakes made prior to my time. Mm -hmm. And that's where that group is so so powerful. That And Patty and I know we both feel very grateful to be able to have a voice on that. And as we get together with other Army survivors, and each branch has a similar setup, but we're, of course, Army. I do think the Army is very genuine in wanting to fix those problems and close those gaps. It is also sometimes just Human error or Mm -hmm. an oversight, but sometimes it is policy, and they're very open to saying, Hey, that's a bad policy. What do we need to do to change it? And changes are being made, maybe not as fast or as perfectly as we want. But wouldn't you agree, Patty, that there's definitely progress being made?
2: Oh, absolutely. I I mean, it's impossible to uh, picture and envision and dream up every possible scenario that can happen. But as soon as they know that there is a, a hole in a process, they move. To fix it. So, yeah. And that's what history is all about. You learn from it. Right. And so they are constantly updating and changing. And like Jenny said, you know, in the 11 years, I've seen so many improvements in the process.
1: Well, Patty, thank you for being a very important part of the improvement in so many of those processes. I think especially for the Army Reserves in North Carolina, I bet those men and women are very well taken care of, very well educated. They've got you in their corner and what a wonderful advocate to have. So, Thank Thank you. you. Thanks for teaching us about resilience and the role that service and hope and optimism can play in building that resilience. And thanks for being real about admitting that resilience means sometimes it's just going to be awful. And part of the resilient mindset is accepting that, preparing for that, and not running away from that. Thank you, Patty. This has been a very powerful conversation.
2: Thank you so much. Thank you, ladies. I appreciate it. And Thank you to your listeners.
1: Oh, and to our listeners, yes, thank you for joining us on another adventure as we just learn and grow together. If you're listening, odds are you probably have a story to share as well, and maybe you're a little shy or haven't thought about it much, or um, maybe you think your story's not big enough or or what, but I can tell you right now we'd love to tell your story. If you're listening, if you or someone you know has a story of resilience that you're willing to share with us, please contact us. You can either email us at rrpodcast at ksl.com, or find us on social media at Relentlessly Resilient Podcast. Find us on any of your favorite podcast platforms. Give us a like and a rating and a review, and we'd love to have you continue joining us each week as we
0: share these beautiful stories. And remember, whatever you do today, remember to be kind. You have no idea the struggles others are dealing with in their lives. Have a great day. Thanks, everybody.